I'm addicted to stress, that's the way that I get things done. If I'm not under pressure, then I sleep too long. And I hang so hello around. and welcome to Unsubscribe, the podcast that will forever cruise the slow lane. That joke will make sense later. Everybody's out of game, but I feel alright. My name is Peter Griffin. Not that one. And I'm Matt. Name withheld. And we're basically here. We're back again after a short break where we're doing a lot of research on customer success and other things out there. And in between all this hard work, we were um, enjoying ourselves. So Matt, how do you enjoy that new Star Wars game? That new Star Wars game. Ugh. Well, this is probably going to be our first segment then. You've got mail. Uh, Okay. So recently there was a huge controversy about Star Wars Battlefront 2. It's an EA published uh, multiplayer online shooter um, that's based in the Star Wars universe. Uh, And they committed what is probably the most mortal sin you can commit as a game developer, as a triple A game developer right now. And that was to put in pay to win mechanics. Do you know what pay to win is, Peter? I've heard of it. Is that like the uh, free, you know, you, you get in, you start playing for free, and then you start uh, purchasing things? You're, you're thinking of free to play, but it's not far off. Uh, so there are these things called loot boxes that have become really popular in a lot of uh, games recently, particularly these sort of multiplayer online shooters. Uh, but most of the time, the items you get out of these loot boxes are purely cosmetic. So you purchase a loot box or you earn the loot box and you get a new skin for your character. A new costume, a new skin for a gun, something to that effect. Um, The important thing is that you never add mechanics that make it so that the players who have paid more money are better than the players who have not paid any money. It's important to note uh, that this is a game that costs $60 minimum. So at minimum, you're spending $60 on this game. They also offer a deluxe edition for $100. Um, And despite that, they instituted the worst form of loot boxes that you could possibly imagine. Essentially what happened was they made it so that the entire character progression was tied into these loot boxes, right? So you had two options. You can play the game for hours in order to get enough of this fake currency to purchase one of these loot boxes, or you can spend real money on one of these loot boxes. And for those who don't know, a loot box is kind of like a grab bag or a slot machine. There are a ton of items, some better than others, that you can get from these boxes. And upon purchasing one, you open it and get three random items. Now, that sounds a lot like gambling. I know that's what you're thinking, but no, this is totally different. You don't have to pay $60 to get into the casino. I mean, you do have to uh, pay with your soul and with other things going on. So, I mean, this this is uh, definitely different than any of the freemium, which was the word I was looking for, uh, uh, games or anything out there, because basically, you've already bought it. Yeah, it's it's $60 room. <laughs> At the $60 mark, which I, I think was more than Mario when it first came out. Mario Brothers. Uh, Actually, that's not completely true. Um, game pricing has not kept up with inflation. So I can see why you need these alternative monetization tactics. And that's something I want to be clear about. I'm not one of those, oh, old school, Mega Man X didn't have microtransactions, so no game should have microtransactions. No. I understand. Like, we need to find other ways to monetize. Games are extremely expensive to produce. Uh, But this is great because it's the shining example of the absolute wrong way to do this. Right? So to talk to you as as a non-gamer, we'll walk you through the steps here. Right? So you start a game. In almost any game these days, you progress, right? You progress, right? Uh, You gain levels. Uh, Basically, the more you play, the more powerful your character becomes. Right? That's all concepts that you're familiar with? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So imagine now, rather than spending more time in the game or accomplishing some difficult feat, 
Instead, you put in your credit card number and paid a hundred more dollars of, of real money. Right? That is their progression. Uh, and the way that they did this, and in a way that they thought people would notice, is essentially everything is run through one of two currencies. Right? There's the standard in-game currency, and then there are diamonds. You can't earn diamonds in-game, but you can purchase them. And essentially, the way it works is loot boxes cost a certain amount of either in-game currency or diamonds. Uh, now, this wouldn't be so bad. Other games do this all the time. They include loot boxes that might let you progress faster. Uh, the two things that make this particularly egregious is that, one, it's the same system for upgrading your character as a whole as it is for anything else, right? So because there's one system, you inherently get an advantage by paying money. Now, on the other end of that, you also need that money to do things like earn heroes, which is like their more powerful classes. Uh, the heroes are the only people you probably want to play as, right? These are like the Darth Vaders and the Luke Skywalkers and so on and so forth. Um, and in order to earn those heroes, you have to either shell out or play for roughly 40 to 45 hours. So, so basically, you know, if we, we were playing a two-player game and I was a crappy player but I had a lot of money. I, I earned I, I earned it. I went out there. I earned that mad money or I maybe I inherited it. And now I'm just playing games. And you're a really good game player, but you don't have the same funds. You're saying that I could beat you at this game. Potentially, yeah. Like the way to think of it is as stats, right? So your grenade blows up twice as good as my grenade does, right? Or your health regenerates 15% faster than my health regenerates, right? or your blaster does 20% more damage than my blaster does. So it's like nickel and diming you into it no longer being a fair playing field. But, but isn't that like real life? Like, isn't this a great training for kids these days? To Star Wars is not real life. Nobody <laughs> bought a Star Wars game for real life. It teaches you those important values that, you know, if I have more money, I'm just going to live longer. That's just the way it's going to work. I mean, you're not wrong, but if we can't escape... My grenades are better. If we can't escape the real world to shoot people in Star Wars, then, like, what hope do we have? <laughs> no hope whatsoever. None. Yeah, that's, that's kind of amazing. And, and, you know, I'm just trying to think of, you know, and I've been sort of not in, engaged in games for, you know, a number of years. Certainly, I'm like the first two Call of Duties, that kind of era of things. And, um, you know, certainly this does seem like uh, something where they're, they're pushing the boundaries. But what I find uh, interesting is also that so many people, you know, people push back and they listen so quickly. And that's even remarked upon by a lot of the commentators out there that say, you know, it's, it's one thing for people to have an outcry. You can't do anything in the game community without someone having an outcry over something, no matter what it is. Uh, and But here's a case where the company seems to respond. So it sounds like, they listen to their their community. They listen Not to their so fast on that. All right. Now, I'm a cynical asshole, so take my word with a grain of salt, as you well should. But as of right now, as someone who owns and is playing this game, the only actual tweak they've made is to make the diamond store inaccessible. So what that means is from within the game, within the UI, I can click buy more diamonds and that just takes me to a blank page because currently I can no longer buy more diamonds. So my feeling is like this was such a rush job and to EA's credit, maybe it was a rush job because they really wanted to satisfy fans before release. Sure, maybe that's true. But look, this is release week for this game. 
If I had to guess, I would say that EA is going to completely leave out all microtransactions for about a week and a half when all of the Metacritic scores are already recorded and after they've got all of that Black Friday, Christmas Day sales, right? They want to be able to sell this game as much as possible and shut up the community uh, until they've sold most of the copies they're going to sell for the holidays. Then they'll probably add the store back with everything discounted 10 or 20%. Like, I, I, I don't know anything about this that anyone else doesn't know outside of what's been widely recorded but if i had to guess you can mark my words on this first week of december those microtransactions are going to be back because they sold all their christmas copies already and it's time to monetize the rest of us so you're basically um not saying this is a stunning victory for customer success <laughs> i don't think it's quite the stunning victory it might appear like we can yeah. we should check back on this one yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to check back because, you know, just to, just to read the sort of like the first level of kind of the common articles out there, there is already chatter that this is not going to be a long-lived fix, that it's a temporary cosmetic solution, that the folks who were saying that it's amazing, it's going to just uh, change, you know, this means that finally companies will be totally responsive, that it's just a, a hiccup in a larger marketing scheme. And with that, I don't want to talk about EA anymore. Fuck them. Uh, let's move on to our next segment forced adoption well as a product of forced adoption i can assure you there are consequences what are we talking about in forced adoption today peter well in forced adoption today we are talking about using the twitter using the twitter that's the way we get fired right yeah you know i always say that uh, twitter is uh used to be 140 characters what is it now uh it's still 140 characters for most people the 280 has not rolled out to anyone who isn't verified Okay, so I'll just say Twitter, 140 characters to getting fired or divorced. So basically using Twitter uh, harnessing. So in, in customer support, there's more uh, customer success. In customer success, there is uh, certainly a recognition that people are on social media. They're on the Twitters. They're on the, the Facebooks. They're on the Snapchats. They're on the, give me another one. Instagram? Instagram, they're on the Pinterest, they're on they're all these on things. Pinterest. They're not on Pinterest. They, uh, they are, uh, that'll make sense later. <laughs> they're on, <laughs> they're basically, every, people are existing. You know, there was a one, one marketer was calling it the, uh, the dark social media. I just don't think that I want to make that a thing, but it was an interesting thing. It was like, it's a little harder to capture when people are on the Snapchat uh, and, and the WhatsApp and the so forth and to sort of group them together and then uh, push out information to them than they are when they're on Facebook and Twitter. So we're going to look at these probably one at a time because it really, it's not just a broad brush, although some people do uh, paint this solution with a broad brush, but we're going to start with the t using Twitter. I keep on wanting to call it the Twitter because I make fun it's of like it. It's like Skypey. It's the Twitter. The Twitter. Uh, we'll see you on the Twitters. Um, so, but using Twitter as a way to... Um, Fold it into overall customer success. Yeah, so uh, like Peter was saying, more and more places are being used for support in particular. Uh, the people on your customer success team that primarily deal with tickets. Um, and it's been used in an interesting light. Uh, the reason why we're focusing on Twitter in this one um, is because we, uh, at the company we work for that will remain unnamed, uh, have recently also uh, started to um, do support through Twitter, uh, only Twitter at the moment. And it comes with its own set of challenges, like so much so that we wanted to, to sort of talk about it. Um, so 
as Peter alluded to before, that 140 character limit is uh, terrible. It, it makes everything so hard. Um, you can't leave a link to a Help Center article, even with like the most conservative URL shortener in the world, you're still going to end up with a link that is too long to fit in the rest of what you're saying in 140 characters, right? Yeah, basically, you know, and I, I first, um, so my experience in turning to Twitter about uh, customer success is as a user of many different online software. And, um, and maybe I'll just say that I use Twitter exclusively to find out what's going on when black helicopters are flying around the building or basically whether there's an outage of a particular uh, service such as Salesforce or Sirius or, you know, so I throw a few others under the bus, but basically something goes out and I wonder, all right, what's going on? I turn to Twitter and usually I'll see people tweeting at the company itself. Hey, you've got an outage. You've got a bug. You've got this. You've got that. You, you know, and um, I kind of follow that to at least know it's not just me. It's a wider uh, wider issue. Yeah, that's that's a good utility for Twitter. But it, the thing, too, is that Twitter quickly became the place where you can publicly yell at the brand you don't like. Um, and everyone developed the sense that, oh, if I complain loud enough, publicly enough, they'll have to help me. Uh, so it gave birth to its own counter support thing uh, that everyone has hated for the entire existence of Twitter. Uh, but with customer support on Twitter, the hope is to intercept that. So you're monitoring tweets to the main brand account. Uh, you are often on a secondary account. As you notice problems happen, uh, you sort of intercept and start at replying people, hopefully praying to God that they will agree to DM you so you can get rid of this character limit and not have to worry about it anymore. Um, and then on the other end of it, the brand's main Twitter will also refer people to you and tell them, oh yeah, have you checked out our whatever support or whatever help Twitter? Uh, go take a look there. They can definitely help you. Have you used the help Twitter for anyone uh, in in terms of as a user of another service? Uh, I have never used uh, Twitter as a support platform myself personally on the consumer end. I have spent a lot of time dealing with it on the other end. Um, and what I'll say is that often the questions they're asking cannot be answered in 140 characters. And so DMs are really your only option. Um, have you interacted with uh, support Twitter on the consumer end of things? I mean, I, I'm i guessing that angry tweets, you know, at MTA. Yeah, that's don't not count. quite the same thing. That's probably what gave birth to this. But I think not... that's what gave birth to this. And this is why this is a little, uh, you know, con you know, it's just, it's, it's a real part of the landscape that, that w people have to respond to. But at the same time, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, it's just easier to say something mean and say something mean in 140 characters than it is to say something conciliatory. Yeah, definitely. It's and, much easier on their end. It's much easier on their end, and, and it kind of puts you at a disadvantage. Plus, you know, we if I'm only turning to Twitter to find out what's on fire, I think a lot of people are only turning to Twitter when there's something on fire. When they are on fire. <laughs> when they are on fire. When their junk is on fire and your company set it off and they're angry, and they're, they're on fire, and they're going to tweet, and they're going to either tweet at you, or they're going to tweet to if you have a, a, a help, a, you know, Twitter 
uh, account that they can even if there is a help to. twitter account they're not trying to be productive they'll almost certainly still tweet at the brand account yeah and i do follow a lot of you know i started following a couple of brands um a few weeks ago when we when we thought we were going to be uh doing this much sooner than we're doing it now quite honestly the things that are tweeted out from those accounts are just so boring you know yeah just it's like terrible to, because commercials. it's, so, it's yeah. like terrible because and i understand why they're just being active to stay active because the real reason is that you're just sort of watching you're just watching if someone lights a bag of some poo on your digital doorstep right it's being there to clean up more than it is actually being there to help i mean have you felt like this is an aspect of customer success that and i know it's been like a fairly new thing and it's a sort of small well you say that but like it's it's also fairly common right like most newer brands particularly app-based startups that kind of thing definitely have a twitter dedicated to support so much so that a lot of the major ticketing systems have social media integration baked in so that when you first create or set up rather your ticketing system you're thinking about social media from the jump um zendesk is one of those uh, desk not currently but you know um it, it's common enough that it's become a, a software standard feature yeah i know but software standard doesn't necessarily mean that this is a a net benefit for the for either the uh, you know i'm going to look at it from the, the the company's point of view you know is like you said the ability to co- to redress some issue via twitter unless someone's going to dm you it's one of those things where you kind of have to be part of it. You have to integrate with it. But at the same time, is it of a utility? Are you finding like, oh, I'm glad this person reached out to us via Twitter rather than just, a, you know, well, dropping us an email hate bomb? That's a hard question. So I think going forward, uh, seeking help on the platforms you were already using is going to be more and more of a thing. Like, it, it does make sense. Absolutely. Uh it's just difficult now. And Twitter's recent move to 280 characters has helped a fair bit. But I think going forward, hopefully there aren't any uh, social media platforms that are quite this restrictive. Um, from my perspective, most of the time, I, I can think of, I, I can count on probably one hand where the character limit was enough to adequately send an answer. Every other time I spent my characters begging them to DM us. Um, and if they already came to Twitter with the content to complain more than try to get help, uh, they're not going to do that. They're just not even going to bother. Um, so from my perspective as a CS manager, it's been nothing but uh, a net headache. But that said, like I like I started this with, I think it's important to recognize that as you continue forward and people get used to different communication standards, this kind of thing is going to happen. And you can't ignore it, right? It's adapt or die. Yeah, it's going to happen, but it's also, it, you know, is, is this just going to be the... the uh you know, the troll fest of uh, customer success. It's kind of like the thing you have to do, but it's of kind of not as much utility in terms of developing uh, real customer relations or being able to succinctly solve something the way that we can do it when we're just being able to respond via an email. Yeah, I think it'll get better as more uh, CS teams are used to dealing with people on Twitter and as more people on Twitter are used to dealing with CS teams and as the software that runs a lot of this stuff gets better, I have no doubt we'll get to a point where it's easier. Uh, are you? If, if you're asking if I think it's required now, I wish it wasn't. But if you want to look forward, you kind of have to do it. Um, overall, it's a pain in the ass, but it's something better. You learn it now than be caught with your pants down later. It's my feeling. Yeah. So in terms of uh, forced adoption, if you don't have uh, some sort of Twitter presence for your customer success team, you really should think about how you do that, how you manage it, what kind of... Uh, time it's uh, allocated as well as 
understanding, and this is my take on it, uh, Matt, is that you know when someone tweets, you gotta you have to respond to that as fast as possible. Is that correct? That's true, and it's the other thing to keep in mind is it's sort of a natural split. So the person you have working in PR and social media probably isn't equipped to properly handle support cases. Uh, so you need someone on your support side who understands social media enough to pull that away from them. Um, I think this was really born from people getting sick of people tweeting terrible things at their main brand Twitter. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that you're right that um, most Twitter accounts, most social media is in the hands of your uh, PR slash marketing people. And um, so it might be that they're putting out, these cookies are great. They go with every season. So it's like, screw your cookies. And they're like, I don't know what to do. Your cookies have too much salt. Oh, well, let me send you to our support team. That can help you reduce the amount of salt, salt. in the recipe. <laughs> in the cookies. All right. Well, yeah. I, again, just like almost always, this I think this ends in a true forced adoption. Forced we're not adoption. happy about it, but we're fucking going to have to do it. Do it. Just do it. All right. Do you want to make more money? Of course we all do. Are you going to let a goddamn cupcake ruin your life? Do you want an endless stream of places you can never go? Houses you can't afford? Clothing you can't afford nor fit into? Does the voice of Martha Stewart make you do terrible things? Do you want to save photos from random sources, sometimes by mistake? Do you like to collect pictures of babies that are more attractive than your babies? Well... You're probably already on Pinterest. This podcast, definitely not brought to you by Pinterest. Do you want to make more money? Of course we all do. Are you the worst human being anyone has ever met? Are you angry that when you hold a door for a woman, she doesn't immediately want to sleep with you? Are you still angry that we elected? Did you fill in that blank with secret Muslim? Have you jacked off to more anime girls than actual girls? I get it. It's hard being a 14-year-old white kid. You can find a community of people like you on 4chan. 4chan. This podcast is definitely not brought to you by 4chan. Alright, so this brings us up to our next section. Objection. Objection, yeah. So today in Objection, we're going to have a debate over net neutrality. Yeah. That thing that we used to like that's now gone. Thanks, FCC. Yeah. I think uh, I was supposed to take the lead on this, which is a little bit um, difficult because uh, first let me explain to those of you who have not been on the digital, who don't use the intertubes. The digital. The digital. Because if you don't know what net neutrality is by now, you are not on the digital. You're not on the intertubes. You are, you are listening to this because someone is reading it to you. You're still on the analog. <laughs> You're on the analogs. There is no system of tubes coming to your house. No, no. So net neutrality. Wait, wait, wait. wait. What about plumbing? Plumbing. A series of tubes holding all of your porn. Uh, yeah, I'm going to stick that with plumbing. That could be plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> For people in the analog, you can still flush your porn down the toilet. That is true, but rip it up first. Don't ask me how I know. So... Um, basically, net neutrality is saying right now we have a service provided by, you know, our cable companies. We get our internet. Uh, we get a bundle. We pay for things we don't use like the telephone and the TV 
And then we have the internet. So when I hired the uh, get internet at my place, they uh, charged me a bundle that has everything. I do not own a television, uh, but I do have a, a wireless router that broadcasts all of the things I want to see onto my my uh, my my computer. Yeah, he's part of the digital. He watches. I TV on his I computer. do the digital. Okay, I am with it. I am a native. <laughs> Uh, digitally, that sounded wrong. But you're anyway. an immigrant at best. <laughs> you got it. So basically, I'm. Uh, so so it's for one price, and the upswing in net neutrality is the belief that uh, corporations are people too, and in a free market, they should be able to have ability to charge uh, different rates of uh, uh, a different price for the different. Let's call it the weight of information. Right, we got to pause that because you mix it up again. Net neutrality. So the argument against net neutrality is everything you said, not for. <laughs> yeah, but that's what they want to do. Right. So you're arguing against what we currently have to do what they want to do. So I just need to say free market. No, no, no. But what you said a minute ago was the argument for net neutrality instead of the argument against <laughs> net neutrality. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Everything you said was fine. You just you messed up that first part. <laughs> I say we just keep it. <laughs> I'll do it again. <clears throat> the argument for net neutrality. <laughs> again. The argument. Wait. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do this anyway. The argument. See, I'm so inculcated. I'm so brainwashed that we have to have net neutrality. That's going to be hard for me to say. The following statement, which I've screwed up a few times, which is the argument against net neutrality, anti-net neutrality. You have no net neutrality. You're not going to be delivered all of your different things through those tubes at the same price. What we're going to do is we're going to split the tubes into different sizes. You're going to have half inch, right? Quarter inch. And like microscopic, okay? This is a very analog analogy. <laughs> well, we're just giving that to the people who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> like we got to break it down into the real. So um, we're, we're funneling that information through those tubes, your hamsters, your bingo, your porn. And basically that stuff takes a lot of information. So it needs the biggest tube and that's going to cost a certain amount of money. And that's good because free market. Because free market, because shareholders make money when you give them your money. And so, so basically what they can do is say, if you want to see and break it down, say, say you use Facebook, you search on Google, and then you watch uh, Netflix. So you're paying a subscription for Netflix. But on top of that, you'll have to pay another fee to allow that streaming to not chunk, to not load, to not do the things it currently does anyway, which is break up my entertainment with still shots of people chewing or talking. Well, first I'll say you probably need better internet. Well, yeah. <laughs> well if I'll there say... was, sir, if there was no net neutrality, I would have better internet because I'd have the ability to pay more for that service in so that way. Let me explain to you why you're wrong. <laughs> Wait, I'm not done explaining why I'm right. I, I, I okay, go ahead. And maybe they get it. Different tubes, different prices. So you might pay eight dollars for Facebook, even though Facebook doesn't get that money. Your your Comcast, your Cablevision. Wait, there's only two companies right now. Is there one more? Does Time Warner exist as a It's provider? basically cable or phone, right? Those cable. are the Cable. But that's who you're giving your money to. So, so on top of the Netflix subscription, I could also pay a considerable chunk to make sure that my entertainment is coming through glitch-free. Okay, so here, here's the thing you have to understand. 
Um, and the argument you made is generally the argument against net neutrality, but fundamentally misunderstands the way things are done now. So to use your tube analogy, your pipe analogy. Which one, the half inch or the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right now, there is a single large tube from your internet service provider to you. Uh, the internet service provider has no say over what goes through that tube. That's totally, that's totally up to you as a consumer. What they're talking about doing is breaking the big tube and instead making several small or varying uh, size tubes. Tubes of varying sizes. Right, tubes of varying sizes. Um, so when they say things like, oh, we want to be able to make fast lanes, what they're really saying is we're going to slow down everything but what we feel like should be on the fast lane. Uh, so it's really a consumer loss, no matter how you look at it. Uh, but what makes this much worse and much more scary is the recent consolidation of a lot of media companies. So you look at Comcast, which is still one of the biggest cable providers in the United States as of the time of us uh, recording this. Uh, they own NBC Universal. They own a large stake in Hulu. So if they can create these fast lanes, it is in their best interest to facilitate traffic to traffic to it's in their best interest to facilitate traffic to one of the different companies that they own be that hulu or one of the various nbc affiliate sites whereas if i want to see something from fox that's inherently going to end up on the slow lane and where that really becomes a problem isn't the foxes of the world because they can afford to pay to get on that fast lane it's the next big thing. It's the next Netflix, right? It's innovation. It's the next big thing that you don't know about yet. Because if you start on the slow lane, suddenly it requires a lot more capital just to be on a level playing field with the other services, which will kill innovation, at least in my opinion. So basically, if you had that next idea, let's say a next platform, and I'm going to just stay intentionally vague, now you can flush it down the big tube. But if you want to get it to your your viewers, you'd have to built bake into your uh you, you know your finances the type of money that's going to be attractive to a cable company in order to, to get on get their fast them lane. to go yep. through that you know one inch pipe in the fast lane yep. um and and that that is very concerning and i think that that's very concerning not just for uh consumers but i think that's also concerning f from just uh how businesses are more reliant now on uh you know on 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 Things in the cloud, you know, your software's uh, just coming right through the internet. You don't have a lot of things. You're not loading things on your computer anymore, basically. The upswing it might be the Google office. It might be that you're using the, the, the you know, the, as I said, the Salesforce, the Citrix, the Zendesk. These things don't live on any one computer. Therefore, they're taking space in that universe of the bandwidth, and they could say, you know, we don't like this, or we, they didn't sign a contract. I guess you could, the analogy in New York City would be that moment where uh, all Yankees games disappeared from television. So they, uh, local, I think it was, um, was it Comcast or was it prior to Comcast? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, whatever it is, they zapped the channel. And it just didn't exist until they worked out the contract. And this could be brought to your internet, where... Something just doesn't exist. It's like a capitalist version of the, uh, you know, the, the Great Firewall of China. Wait a second. I'm taking the side four. Yeah. No, we have to do this because of free market. Right, because of free market. So the other thing that people argue 
uh, and that Agit Pai currently argues, is that should Comcast become a crazy dictator, um, everyone will simply go to another different service um, and the market will fix it, right? It'll correct itself. It'll force Comcast to continue to offer some form of net neutrality. The problem and the reason why that doesn't work in this country, in the United States, is because so often, particularly in rural America, uh, the choice for the speed you want is made for you. Uh, it's a monopoly. If you want speeds faster than what DSL offers, you have the one cable company in your neighborhood. It's that, or you suffer through slower DSL speeds or dial-up. And because uh, those slower DSL speeds are also offered by one person, uh, whatever telecom company is, services your area, you never have more than two choices for 90% of the United States. Uh, so when you're playing in that environment, you can't make that whole, oh, another new competition will spring up because the infrastructure required to do that would have to be laid down by those people, uh, which is just not going to happen. No one can afford that, particularly a new ISP who wants to be someone who new or different. Um, it's kind of a bastardized version of the European system where the government spent the money to lay down that initial infrastructure to lay down the fiber and then they allow a multitude of resellers to sell service on that fiber we're never going to have that system here so the idea that the market can correct itself is just ridiculous in my opinion yeah i mean i have i live nine it's 90 miles um outside of new york city and there's only one provider so you're not even talking about rural america like oh we have to be worried about people in, in Arkansas, Iowa. no. Yeah, or Arkansas, or what have you. It's it's really that... We never... Well, we worry about people in Arkansas, but for different reasons. For different reasons, that's for sure. Uh, but really, it's about our... You know, you don't have to... You, you don't have to go. Probably you're listening um, because... Only because of net neutrality, you know, at the moment. It's very concerning, and it looks like it's going to be rolled back. Oh, wait, I'm for it. So I'm happy it's going to be rolled back. There's going to be a lot more choice... And if you don't want to pay $8 to be on Facebook, probably you shouldn't be on Facebook anyway. I mean, it's only... Yeah, poor people don't deserve the internet. Poor people should not have brunch, okay? That is a truce. Yeah, stop eating all that avocado toast and pay for your internet. Wait, are you agreeing with me, sir? You're supposed no, to disagree. I'm being facetious. <laughs> oh, oh, but I'm that sort of person that can't identify that. So anyway, net neutrality uh, should should die. It's... um you know, really horrible. I can't wait to make a lot of money uh, charging suckers for Hulu. And, you know, Hulu does have uh, reruns of Rick and Morty. So quite honestly, uh, you know, I, I fully support the Huluization of, uh, <laughs> of the cable companies. All right. Well, that's our debate. Uh, listeners, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell us who you think won. Yeah. Who do you think won that argument? Let us know. Five I, stars. I, I think I won. And you can email us your own uh, ideas about any of this at uh, unsubscribethepod at gmail.com. Uh, you can rant to us. I think we don't have a Twitter account yet. We don't yet have a Patreon. What are we missing? Uh, we're missing a lot of things. We're, we're missing, missing a lot of things. things. We don't yet have a we're website. We're on iTunes now. We're on iTunes. We are on iTunes. And SoundCloud. So and you SoundCloud. can listen to this theoretically. But uh, the rest of that shit, we'll, we'll get to it. Check okay. us out. We've got like one or two graphics. They're pretty sweet. Um but uh, yeah, so I think we're on to our next section. Yeah, so next is our free consultation. The call is free. The advice is free. So free consultation, um, we want to talk about when is the best time to rent an office. 
a shared space, etc. And so, of course, we're probably talking about a startup process. Um, I can, I'm, I'm going to go into a little bit about a startup that I was part of many years ago that uh, uh, failed, or I would be very rich. And I'd like be most do. Magazine. Like most do. So uh, a friend of mine and I, you know, this starts out with that uh, story. So I guess I should say the story the way it's usually said. Two guys were unhappy with the way that independent movies got funding. So they decided to do something about it. They decided to found a company that would give funding to producers in order to make their dreams come true. And how would they do this? They would get people. That's right. People. People who wanted to see their movie. But their movie wasn't made yet. Are you describing Kickstarter right now? Yeah, I know. This was like 20 years ago. Anyway, so we were trying to do something that was like Kickstarter, but we were really stupid and we were just out of college. And um, we decided that the best way to make this happen is to go from not working at our independent apartments, but to rent a big loft and to build enough rooms. Each room was going to be filled by, this is a true story, each room was going to be filled by a different role. So we had five rooms, not based on how much money it costs to rent the space. We had five rooms based on president, vice president, head of marketing, and two developers. Okay, well, first, I just want to commend you. Uh, now everyone knows that Peter Griffin is the one who invented crowdfunding. So let's all give him a hand for that. Thank you. We even registered with the FEC. Uh, yeah, that's a long story. Anyway, right, yeah, so no, the point I, of this is that we jumped into... Without even having our company, with we didn't even draw the papers. We just basically like, all right, so we basically moved in together, okay? We moved in together, but with the reason that we were going to have this company and how we were going to fund it, this wonderful space, was we'd first take roommates who weren't related to the company. And as our company grew, we would get them out. Hey, it wasn't my idea. But anyway, this is what happened. And this is a great way of in introing when you just rent an office space. Yeah, so it's not uncommon now for startups to start with almost everyone working remotely or meeting in coffee shops. We didn't have that back then. <laughs> this is not an indictment of you, Peter. You're this, looking at me funny. This is not a reprimand. You're staring at me. You make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the inventor of crowdfunding <laughs> is uncomfortable when I look at him. Um, so, yeah, mostly it starts being remote and then slowly and short but surely you realize it'd be really good to have everyone in one space uh but it's very expensive especially in bigger cities like new york and san francisco to rent a full office space um, so more places now offer uh, shared offices where you have a row of desks in a larger environment with a bunch of other um, entrepreneurs uh, startups um, which promises the ability for collaboration these are like the we work style places or places you can rent on the app breather um, that kind of thing, uh, but it's not cheap. It's also, it, it's extremely expensive. So knowing when it's finally time uh, can be hard. Um, I'd say you're not wrong to start almost entirely remotely um, because like I said, especially when you're first starting out, it's extremely expensive to rent an office space. That said, the moment you feel like there's too much miscommunication, whether that's between four employees or 40 employees, uh, the moment you feel like you're go jumping through extra hoops to do basic things, that's when you know you've waited too long. <laughs> uh, so if you're feeling that now and you're contemplating getting a shared office, it's 
you're probably too late. You probably should have done it like a month ago. But but are you saying you can go from zero to hero as a sort of totally remote team? Or are you saying like we all decide to pile in Trevor's living room until we finally outgrow that space? Well, I I don't suggest you try and run a startup out of a residential building unless it's you know a garage and your parents own it and all that. Um, if you are renting an apartment, it, it's not an office space. It's not equipped to be an office space. And you're going to end up getting in trouble. Your doorman's going to hate you. <laughs> uh, and so if when it's time, obviously you have to have the capital to do this. That falls into what we were talking about before, about knowing when you're ready. If you can't reliably produce the capital required to keep that office space open for a year, you're not ready for an office space financially. You just can't do it. Uh, so that's the other end of it, right? It's one part, would there be a meaningful increase in efficiency in my team if we were all in the same place? And then the other part is, can I really afford this? But but don't you think that it should be just part of your seed capital that you're not even really going forward with, you know, maybe you've done a wireframe, maybe you've done some, you know, concept pieces, but that you, you don't really go out of the gate until you have enough seed funding to get at least a few desks in a place that's not, you know, uh, like I said, Trevor's living room or your mom's garage. Uh, uh, potentially. I think that might have been true before, but in nowadays where a team of three people can make a successful video game, uh, I think it really, it really depends. Uh, if you get enough seed money that you feel comfortable enough in your finances to rent an office space for a year and you think it'll be beneficial, sure, do it. But I don't think it, it's quite the same requirement as it used to be. Uh, there are a lot of small teams that work together perfectly well, meeting occasionally in coffee shops and working remotely. Uh, that's why it really comes down to you as the entrepreneur, as your CEO or CTO or CMO or whatever role you take. It's really about your team's efficiency and whether or not you feel like there'll be a net benefit by spending what, it, what will be a large sum of money uh, on a meeting place for all of you. I mean, I did see levels, you know, I did a brief sort of, you know, this is total informal survey, but things like, and I, my, I know we work only because I've gone to their place. I've had people who've had companies who work out of the WeWork place, but all of the other uh, shared office spaces pretty much work the same. There's only one that basically is like a very anonymous, you just sort of let yourself into a, a dark room and, <laughs> and hope for the best. But, um, uh, that the lowest, the lowest that they always say, oh, it's only for such and such and you can have a desk. And it's pretty cool because they are nice buildings. They got everything. But I mean, that lowest, uh, you know, level of one or two desks, it doesn't give you what I think is really the benefit from, uh, a shared office space. And maybe this is, this is a little outside of just that very practical as my three person team, not communicating well, which I want to talk a little bit more about in a moment. But it's also, would my idea of a fantasy football startup fundraising crowdsourced uh, social media dating app really benefit from being in an environment where at the water cooler, at the beer cooler, and those are for more money. So expect to pay more to get this kind of sweet, sweet networking. But the networking aspect of, of a WeWork, like a lot of people talk to, you know, tell me about it's great to work remotely. But there's an isolation, there's a loneliness, there's a inability to have those kind of non-verbal cues, develop relationships of trust and so forth that are essential, especially in the more creative areas. But then there's other people who tell me, well, that's a generational thing. And, you know, the worker today, the person today uh, is more comfortable uh, 
finding those non, those quote unquote, those in-person cues through other media outlets. Like you're talking professionally on your platform and you're joking inappropriately on WhatsApp with each other, that type of thing. I mean, yeah, that's that's certainly true. And I, I think there is some truth to the idea that it's a, a generational thing. Uh, it used to be you weren't considered an actual employee. You didn't have a real job if you only ever worked from home. You weren't considered a human being. You stayed on your couch. Uh, I just, I guess my main argument is that it, it it's that's not true anymore, right? Particularly if you're working on an app and you're in low-level stages where you don't require a huge staff. I think you could get through your first or second year with remote workers fairly easily. Uh, that said, like you said, if you're doing something a little more creative, that ability to collaborate in real time is more important. Uh, but I do think as we continue to go forward, we'll see more and more of people who just aren't willing to spare the ex- expense for what for your team may be a negligible benefit. Yeah, no, I guess, and I don't mean to turn this segment into an objection because I, I'm, you know, your triggers, you, you have a certain set of triggers that you say should be in place in order to say, go for the office. And I'm actually seeing a different level of triggers. And I want to just also clarify that by creative, also coding is included for creative, you know, just being able to collaborate in a way. And I've worked at companies where they have these sort of like, they had these fish bowls. They actually smelled like fish bowls too. And they had coders and developers and so forth all together. And I think, you know, a lot of them have said that they benefited from being in that kind of environment, although they also worked with teams in the Ukraine and throughout the world. So there was always those, you know, I will tell you, inconveniently timed conference calls at weird hours uh, with the remote teams. But that's a whole other question. So I just wonder whether it's, uh, you know, what is the face of your company? Uh, Are you coming out of the gate and you need a place that you can meet? perspective, I don't know, board members, perspective investors that is not just in cyberland, or is it that I'm hearing from you is that it really gets to be practical about it. Don't just sort of go for the gusto and say, hey, I'm a CEO and I have a company and companies work out of offices and here's a cool office I can almost afford for two months before I burn through my my capital. Uh, And you should be like, all right, when does the chain of communication breakdown and what's the size of our team and also this sort of comes a little for me like do we need in-person collaboration at times where you know I work right next to you and you know I know I could get you on the slack at any time but it's something it's a lot faster just sometimes it's a little more rapport especially when you're actually expanding my mind and teaching me something about this uh all these pipes filled with digital information. <laughs> well, no, I, and I think, okay, so let me first say, I don't disagree with anything you said. I think one of the main reasons why you do move into an office space, especially shared office space, is to encourage that sort of collaboration. And in a perfect world, yeah, everyone would have an office space. There is a net benefit to it. That said, it's part of fiscal responsibility to make sure that you can afford any office you move into. Uh, and like you said a moment ago, you're not going to burn through the current money you have in, in two months. Uh, I, I don't think there's any shame in taking your time and making sure that you can meet that financial burden, particularly if you know your team, you know the way they collaborate, you know that they're perfectly fine uh, sharing snippets of code uh, through Slack um, or uh, 
on issues in Jira or, or however else you plan to do it digitally. Um, if you know you can get by, then get by. That said, if you feel like you need it, generally speaking, by the time you realize you need it, you probably already needed it. So if you're feeling that now and you know you can afford it, pull the trigger. It will not, you won't regret it. I feel yeah. comfortable saying that. Yeah. And then just, is there any particular, just off the top of your head, um, uh, is there any particular space that you would recommend you know, over another one? You mentioned WeWork before. I think WeWork is great, but I wouldn't uh, necessarily say that they're the only choice in town anymore. I think uh, with services like Breather, it's really worth taking a look at what's around you. Because let's say maybe you decide you only want to have that space open for a week. Uh, you want to have sort of a you know, hackathon with all of your developers in one building and get them really working together and having a great week. Uh, you get that flexibility through apps like that, but it's also a great way to sort of scour your neighborhood for uh, workspaces. Um, a lot of times you can book a place for a short period of time through Breather only to find out that, oh no, they're looking for people to move in as well. They're looking for people to fill space. Uh, it can be a great way to try before you buy. And it's always difficult finding the right place when you decide you want to spend the money. So I'd say check that out first. But when in doubt, you know, the WeWorks of the world, they exist for a reason, right? They're reliable. They have most of the options you'll need. You're going to pay a little more than you would out of some warehouse in Brooklyn. But you know what? At the end of the day, you're paying for what you get. And they're, they are very kind of cookie cutter, but they certainly do have uh, all the services you need. And uh, certainly there's no option that I'm aware of on the Airbnb. So you could just Airbnb like a work apartment. I think that's only residential. What is it with you and wanting to run businesses out of residential dwelling? I, I, I watch Silicon Valley and I like the idea of the incubator, you know? I'm all about yeah. that. No, incubators are great. But like that's another example of him going to the investor to get what they need rather than having the thing to impress the investor, right? Like if you're raising venture capital, they have somewhere where you will meet them for a meeting. No, you don't have to have an office to impress them. No, that's, that's about me going to the boob tube and getting inspiration from TV. Now, what tube does the TV go through, Peter? The, the, it goes through a series of tubes, Matt. It's very complicated. It's really HBO terrible now? when they go through one-inch tubes and then you go back to two-inch tubes. You never want to step okay. down and yeah. then step up. All right. With that, I think we're done. <laughs> That's going to end free consultation. When do you feel like it's time to rent an office space? A, when you can afford it. And B, when you think, yeah, I can really use that. Uh, and I think with that, we're going to bring it to a close. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, please rate us five stars on iTunes and tell us who you think won the debate. Yes, definitely. I won the debate. Thank you, sir. Uh, please send us an email at unsubscribethepod at gmail.com. Uh, we're particularly interested in getting your feedback, of course, and hearing from other CS managers who have fun stories. Uh, we'd love to read your stories on the air or chat with you and generally expand our horizons a little bit. And I want to talk about interviews that we want to bring in. It might not be in the next one or two, but what we're looking for, uh, and we'll have some lined up. We're going to have interviews with people who are working in CS, and we're going to do it in a slight different way. Uh, it's going to be pretty entertaining. I think we'll drop that when it finally releases. But just to give you a teaser, if you would like to be interviewed, this would be a way to do so where you will be totally anonymous. Um, we will take your information. We will corroborate your story. So no pie-in-the-sky things, but certainly uh, we'll do it in a way that people can talk very freely about the issues that are in CS and really uh, help build this as a community. So thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll laugh. We'll learn from each other. It'll be great. And this is a great WeWork space we rented. Uh, check them out. Check them out.
This podcast definitely not brought to you by WeWork. Not brought to you by WeWork. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. I think I'm going nowhere, and that makes me nervous. Everybody's at the gimme, but I feel alright. Everybody's at the gimme, but I feel alright. Everybody's at the gimme, but I feel alright.